You are listening to the Enormo Cast. The Enormo Cast is proud to be sponsored by Black Diamond Equipment. At Black Diamond, the process of building gear begins and ends with climbing. A need drives an idea, and that idea is tweaked, tested, and refined in a never ending cycle. Use, design, engineer, build, repeat. Guided by this philosophy, Black Diamond has been making equipment for the full spectrum of climbing pursuits for more than 25 years. From the boulders to the big walls and everything in between, Black Diamond makes gear and apparel you can trust when it matters. Visit BlackDiamondEquipment.com to check out the latest all-new gear, as well as a fine-tuned collection of apparel, and get the latest stories, photos, and videos on their blog, Black Diamond Experience. How's that for a process commercial? Eh? We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the... Uh... The Normo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll say, you really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes. And don't forget, you can go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Normo at checkout to get a discount on great coffee. And you can go to pureholds.com and enter Normo to get a discount on great Colorado made climbing holds. Both the coffee and the holds will give you the power to crush your enemies and see them driven before you. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormous Cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is Monday, January 19th, about 9.30 Mountain Standard Time. This is episode 73 of the Enormous Cast, a conversation with the sage of Devil's Tower, Mr. Frank Sanders. This one came about in kind of an interesting way. I was back in Wisconsin for the holidays, and I'd actually driven the Mighty Previa the whole way. So I got in touch with Frank because I thought, well, I'll just blast my way across the plains and hook up with him at Devil's Tower. And he was totally game. And the cool thing is when I got there, it was freaking cold. Typical Wyoming, windy, blustery, snowy weather. He invited me into the house. We hung out with him and his special lady friend, put me up for the evening, and in the morning we sat down in his office for a conversation. A bunch of people have been asking me to have Frank on the show, and now I know why. Really interesting guy, a lot of wisdom, been around a long time, climbed a lot of things. And I really don't have much else to say. Don't have anything really coming up. Headed to OR, the Outdoor Retailer Show, next week. Got a bunch of great interviews lined up for that. My numbers seem to be showing that we're bringing on a bunch of new listeners in the last couple of months. I'm not sure why that is, but it's awesome. Hopefully you longtime listeners are continuing to tell your friends about it. So keep in mind that if you do want to help out the Cast, there are a bunch of ways to do that. You can donate. You can write a review on iTunes. You can just like the Facebook page. If you want more information, go to enormacast.com. Click on the Help Out tab. Follow the instructions up there. Always appreciate it. This thing is still underground, still depends on you guys making it happen. So consider doing a little something to support the show. 
Okay, so here's our interview with Frank Sanders. We're going to go in on music that he played. I recorded. He's quite the accomplished musician. So sit back and enjoy Frank Sanders on the piano and then the rumble of Frank Sanders' voice in your ears. Episode 73, How to Live the Dream. Look, folks, we all know that ice climbing is a miserable, cold endeavor, punctuated by small spikes of joy, mostly when it's over. But if you're planning on heading to the famous ice park in Uray, Colorado, to climb out your self-loathing, why not up the joy ratio by staying in the Wiesbaden Hotel and Spa? Imagine, after your third round of screaming barfies, you can retire to their vapor cave and soaking pool for a, quote, strange, dark, steamy underworld soaking experience. The Wiesbaden is affordable luxury in Uray. In fact, if you climb in Uray and don't stay there, you are totally blowing it. Discounts all winter. Go to wiesbadenhotsprings.com for more information. Once again, that's wiesbadenhotsprings.com. It's really the only way you'll find me ice climbing. done my climbing in the morning okay and in the evening in the afternoon I knew there was a storm coming in and I knew nobody was in the park so I just took myself up for a walk winds blowing but hadn't started snowing yet but god it was cold and you hear voices in the wind and sure enough the sun goes down and there's headlamps on top of the tower and you can see they can't find the repel bolts and storm's coming, and it's going to be a big one. You can just feel it. And I yelled myself hoarse, and they couldn't hear me. So I come back to the house, got on the phone, and realized very quickly there's not one park service person in the park or available to come. And the previous year, the guy who was law enforcement with the park, Greg, he's Ohio. He's like me. He wanted to stay in the area. He got on with the sheriff's department in the county. And I knew Christmas Day, the single white male and the newest guy on the crew would be the one out in the car. So I called up the sheriff's department and Greg came out and he had a bullhorn and a light. And together, using both, we could get them down and spot the rappel anchors for him. And there were some Eastern European people, both working on PhDs in this country, very bright people. So I brought them home, threw them in the hot tub, fed them stew, <laughs> and they spent the night. And the next morning they took off. And I don't know if you know this, there's a plastic nut up there on that uh-huh. shelf. Yeah, yeah, I did actually see That's that. That's where metal doesn't nut. touch rock. They, oh, they right. climbed, so you can't use metal stoppers, but you can use fiberglass stoppers. So they left that with me. So Christmas, I, Christmas Day this year, I had here alone by myself, which is the way I wanted it. And I called up a lot of people, made that Christmas phone call. And Greg, who's now working in Las Vegas for BLM, doing the same law enforcement thing, uh, wasn't home, so I left him a message. And I said, Greg, I cannot help but think, you know, of memorable Christmases on Christmas Day. And the most memorable, all due respect, 
was my first that I remember when I was three years old and mom brought my baby brother home from the hospital. But second only to that was the Christmas day you and I spent in the storm with the Euro people up on the tower and stormed just raging and all that shit. And I just give thanks that we had that time together because for me it's been totally memorable. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Give me a call when you get back. He calls me up the next day, and at this time I'm working on a pile of bills and a pile of Christmas cards. Paying until I get tired, and then I reply to Christmas cards. So we're talking on the phone, and I'm kind of flipping over the cards, and Greg Johnson, card. So I open it up. I say, Greg, I just got your Christmas card, dude. I just got your fucking Christmas card. This is too cool. And I open it up, and what does it read? Greg wrote me. Dear Frank, yet another year is almost past us again. I hope this finds you in good spirits and excellent health. Today, I told our Christmas story of sitting on a bench and pointing lights and loudspeakers into the sky, staring up at the tower, listening and watching as two lonely climbers found their way to safety with our help. Best Christmas Eve in years. Nice. And I hadn't even known he'd written this to me when I made the phone call. Right. Him. So it's obviously the Christmas he remembers, too. That's cool. That's awesome. It had everything to do with climbing. Physically, it had nothing to do with climbing. Mm-hmm. Who did it? I think that's part of the magic of climbing. Right. I know the old quote in the Shinar catalog. Climbing would be more fun if it weren't for all the damn climbing. Right. I forget. Maybe Chuck <laughs> Pratt said that. I right. forget. And no, no. I enjoy the climbing and I enjoy the things that that go on about the climbing. The friendships, the partnerships, the, the experiences, the, the shared frights and the shared joys. I've competed on a lot of athletic teams and they're... If you face a defeat, it's just a score on the board. Climbing, if you face a defeat, then it's a little bit more involved. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm sitting in Frank Sanders' office. In you know, if the sun was shining, we might be in the shadow of of Devil's Tower, but sorry. we are certainly in a distance that we are under the influence of the power of the tower. Right. The image of the tower fills the windows on that this side of the house. and Well, hell, you can even close your eyes and feel the power of the tower here. Yeah, it's 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 pretty astounding piece of property and the views out the out the various windows. It's you know, it's not like, oh, yeah, there it is off in the distance. It's like right there. We, we I drove through the park to get here. It's a private holding outside the park. Um, uh, Devil's Tower Lodge is your your home and your business and everything else. And and uh, it's I mean, it is an amazing piece of property to to. Uh, to live on i mean it, it it'd be like living and the other side of the meadow and uh in yosemite like we're that close to devil's tower you know like if you had a house in the meadow so which is pretty cool so you've been climbing in devil's tower or on devil's tower for i mean almost your whole climbing life how long has it been since you've been you, you first came here in the 70s is that correct I first yeah. hitchhiked out here in june of 72 
All right. from the East Coast. And uh, at that time, there were only 80 routes on the town. Mm-hmm. No 11s, very few. I don't even know if there are any 10s. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you know, let's actually, let's start there. I mean, well, that, that's a year after I was born. Um, so I was still... <laughs> Flowing around in diapers. Just a minute, let me put my walker in the corner here. It's getting in the way. <laughs> so you tell me though. Let's even go a little bit back further. We might as well start there. Um, so you were living. You grew up in the East Coast, Maryland or DC, that area, from what I understand. I grew up in suburban Maryland. Okay, little white houses, right outside DC, mm-hmm. middle class America, and I guess up to a far too heightened age I thought that's what all that existed mm-hmm. outside of the pictures in National Geographic sure I never imagined going to such places or doing such things so what happened to a get you into climbing because I mean we're talking about a time there was a handful of climbing epicenters in the country you know we all talk about the storied sort of you know new paltz boulder you know Yosemite or Southern California kind of triumvirate but even in those places, there was hardly anyone climbing. So how does a kid in, in Maryland dream of hitchhiking to Devil's Tower? Oh, man. Or did you come here not a climber? Oh, no, I came here a climber. Okay. This was definitely getting into it. But my very first climbing, and I try to tell this story to all my clients because I can relate. I grew up the kid that couldn't read enough mountaineering books, even though I'd never seen a real mountain. My idea of adventure was hiking in the woods but i i dreamt of faraway places and peaks and rocks and climbing i mean we're all born climbers we just get older and forget and i had my first chance at it 10th grade high school had a climbing club and on one faded saturday afternoon in september went out to a little crag called carter rock i don't think anything out there is taller than 50 feet and it was with a club from the high school. The anchors were giant oak trees at the top. You couldn't even get your arms around. They were so big. And there wasn't one person belaying you. There were three or four. The whole experience was so safe, it was sterile. Now, of course, it was gold line rope, because that's all there was. And of mm-hmm. course, nobody had a harness. You wrapped the rope around your waist three times and learned to, you know, your special knot with a backup on it. And I had dreamt of this all my life. And that day, I climbed up twice on a top rope, rappelled down twice on a, uh, both a breaker bar and on a dulfer sit, a body rappel. That was enough. It just scared the bejesus out of me. I didn't trust the rope. I didn't trust these huge trees. I didn't trust nothing. And I did not try climbing again for a full year. And when I tell that story to my clients, I've got to add, you know, so if you got some hesitation today, don't worry about it. You're cool, because I know what you're talking about. I've been there. And it was a full year. I, I'd go with the club and watch, and there weren't any close calls. Nobody got hurt. Everybody was smiling and laughing. And I knew there was this threshold or doorway that I needed to pass through to get to the other side from grinding teeth and frowns and the great fear to laughing and 
than having a good time. So after a year, I went back at it. I started laughing and having a good time. As a matter of fact, in my senior year in high school, I had a car. And um, out the back gate of the parking lot at school, it was 11 minutes to the crag. So uh, don't tell my folks, but I spent most of my senior year in high school out at Carter Rock climbing during the school days. Yeah, yeah, the fire had been lit, definitely. So what did you end up, how did you end up acquiring gear? Who, and who were you climbing with on these, like, ditch days? Well, oh, there were all kinds. I had a car, so I could solicit all kinds of people who wanted to split school and go ride, you right. know. And really, to climb at Carter Rock, all you needed was a, a gold line rope and loop it around one tree anchor at the top maybe some webbing and two carabiners those were eiger ovals right right and you could get uh, 10 of them for 20 bucks that was pretty cool no you get a dozen for 20 bucks mm-hmm. they were two bucks each or you could get a dozen for 20 bucks mm-hmm. so, so didn't need gear and you're climbing in clutter shoes right so what was i mean was you're you living in suburbia what'd your dad do what's your i mean what was like kind of the You've got this kid who's suddenly into climbing. Did that fit in with with sort of your family structure, or, or was there any encouragement for outdoor activities, that kind of thing? Mm, not really. Father, I had a very good father. I was really blessed with that man. Mm-hmm. Hard worker. He worked for the government. So his commute to work was from suburban Maryland down uh, Massachusetts Avenue, past all the embassies and the national monuments. And his uh, his office was right there next to the Capitol. Yeah. But I didn't know Dad a whole lot growing up. He, we'd have breakfast together as a family, but he'd always come home late at night. He'd say, I'm not going to go through the rush hour and sit in the car when I can be sitting at the office and getting some work done. Mm-hmm. And he was a very, very faithful servant for the federal government. Right. So you're in, you're a teenager then in the 60s. Absolutely. You know, so at what year were you born? 51. 51. About so to you, turn 60, finish my 63rd trip so around you, the sun. All right, tomorrow. Yeah, happy birthday. Yeah. The So you're talking about being a 16-year-old in 1967. So, I was 15, to be honest okay. with you. Yeah. But either way, 67, yeah, 68, 69, like you were a teenager. I mean, so that makes you 18 in 19, the, the summer Something of 69 like yeah. or right around there. Yeah. You know, so it was wh- the summer of '69. Yeah. So Brian was this Adams. was this also in your head? I mean, were you listening to rock and roll? Were you were you that kid as well? Or you know, w- you know, I'm trying to like figure out like was were you part part of this? I guess rebellious movement and did climbing fit into that? Or were you feeling those kind of urges in terms of? Well, I'm not that into this scene here in in suburban Maryland. I feel so blessed to have grown up when I did and where I did. Um, Washington, D.C. is full of museums, monuments, places where you can walk and hear the gears of the democratic process mesh and grind. It's a wonderful place to grow up. It's a very special place in this world, and at that time, that's all I knew. Right. I never took it for granted, don't get me wrong. I knew walking into the Library of Congress, shoot, man, people come from all over the world to do that. And 
I might be downtown with my dad one Saturday while he's working, and I'd go across the street to the Library of Congress and sit and read. Is that special? Right. Oh, my gosh. And as we got into high school, there was a little tea party going on in Asia, in Vietnam, and a lot of people were looking mostly self-centeredly, do I have to go? Can I avoid this? Do I want to support it? Not many of my peers raised that concern to the level of, what is our government doing? Why the heck are we there as a country? Right. We're more concerned with, am I going to end up there? Rather than try to sway the direction or the fate mm-hmm. of the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think music-wise, wow, man, that was just the best time to grow up. Right. There's soul music. There's James Brown. Um, the Beatles are singing, I want to hold your hand. Uh, Rolling Stones are singing, Let's. we ought to spend the night together. Mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix is burning his guitar. And uh, Neil Diamond singing Brother Loves Traveling Salvation Show. What a wonderful time. What a huge cacophony of music and input and direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the best was the summer of 69, but it way preceded that. Right. Oh, yeah. So, you know, my next question, and you sort of started to address it, is so you turn, whatever, 17, 18, you know, what about the draft? Like, where was, what was your position in that? And did you, I don't, I've never heard you say anything, did you end up in Vietnam? I did not want to go to Vietnam. Right. I did not. I give thanks for all the soldiers then, now, and in between. Right. That have given us a life in this country that the rest of the world just fantasizes about. Sure. Where we're sitting right now, Chris, this is 1% of the world lives like this. I hope we never take that for granted. But no, I did not see going in the army to go halfway around the world to kill people for reasons that were very unclear to me. Sure. I didn't. Um, It made me work harder towards getting into a college. Mm -hmm. And um, I wasn't a poor student, but I wasn't an A student either. And it was an athletic scholarship that got me into a school in Tennessee. For what what, uh, sport? (laughs) (laughs) Was it Ultimate Frisbee? What are we talking about? (laughs) Regrettably, they didn't have Ultimate Frisbee at that time. It had long time been an Olympic sport. It was not an NCAA sport at that time. Now it is. It was uh, target shooting. It was rifle. Huh. And my first college captain took gold in the Pan Am games. Right. And then later, much later, my my first roommate, Ed, took gold in the L.A. Olympics. Huh. Small bore rifle. Yeah. Um, It got me through. It got me into Right. And through college. Right. It was a ride. It was right. really, really good. Um, more important than that, I think, what Rifle taught me was discipline. And you got to practice. Mm-hmm. And also, at a time that I'd never even heard the word Zen. Right. More or less how to spell it. Right. The Zen thing was happening, I think, for all of us mm-hmm. who shot. Uh, many of you have read uh, The Zen Archer. Right. And you need to get your brain out of the way because the shot will shoot itself. And even at that time, all of us very unenlightened. <laughs> busy getting drunk, busy getting stoned, be, busy being 20 years old. Sure. You know, or being a teenager. 
but when it came time for a match and, and getting it done, all of us were realizing on a certain level the biggest problem was getting our brain out of the way and letting the shot shoot itself. But none of us had read Zen in the Art of Motorcycle. We didn't even know the word. But it was very huge and very powerful and very recognizable. <clears throat> I remember being at the national championships in Camp Perry one summer. And we were the kids and we were just beating everybody, even the old men. And um, one afternoon we were, it's, it's kind of a mass shower thing. So after the matches, everybody's showering up and I'm talking to my teammate. And I said, yeah, during kneeling, man, the second half and kneeling, God, I got the who playing so loud in my head. It wasn't like we had earbuds. It was just what was going on. And that's how we would occupy our mind to get our mind out of the way so the perfect shot could shoot itself. And so many other younger people were experiencing the same thing. Yeah, I got this tune coming in and I laid them all in the ten ring. And here are these old guys that have been shooting forever and they're looking at us like, God, those boys are on drugs. What is that about? And I think that Zen is a whole lot of what climbing's about. You got to make the exposure shut up. You got to make that part of your brain that's saying, oh my gosh, it's so far to my last piece. And the only thing that's important is the next foothold or the next handhold. Once you can get the screaming monkeys in your brain to shut up, well, then you can go climb. And once you can get the analytic part of your brain to shut up, well, then you can shoot well. So it's hard to say, it's hard to imagine <clears throat> that a sport like rifle where you win by holding very still, the skills there are readily transferable to climbing where you know if you hold still, you're not gonna get anywhere. So. But yeah, that was the real head trip then. Are you still a good shot? Oh yeah. Yeah, I bet. Oh yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But at that time in life, man, I was shooting. I was in the range, squeezing the trigger five or six days a week for years. I don't do that anymore. Right. I guess my obsession has been replaced by climbing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so let's, let, let me get to that then. So we, we were talking about this trip to the Devil's Tower. Um, you went through college, still climbing. You're, oh, yeah. And uh, you're in, you said you're in Tennessee. Tennessee, but mm -hmm. yeah, traveling in the summers. What's your? Are you getting getting out and away? What I did construction what, work in the summers. Okay, what year is what years is this? Like uh, I started college in seventy. Okay, and, and you uh, went to Devil's Tower in seventy one. Seventy two. Seventy two. So, yeah. So that you're dreaming. You're moving on. So tell well, us about the first trip here. Actually, my eyes have always been too big, right, for my stomach. So in the summer of seventy one. Uh, my bud and I read an article in a magazine, drove a Jeep up the Alcan Highway to Watson Lake, took a float plane for the kingly sum of $200 back to Cirque of the Unclimbables and tried to get up Lotus Flower Tower. I think we were the third or fourth party back in that area. We got our asses handed to us. We couldn't. No, that was way too much for us at that time, but... 
What an amazing experience. I didn't want to close my eyes at night. The, the northern lights ripped the sky up every night. And uh, as promised, the float plane came back after 10 days. And yeah, we got a lot of climbing done. Mm-hmm. Uh, we sure didn't find the top of Lotus Flower, man. No, no, that was way beyond us. But that was country I'd never seen. Even the faintest hint of in all my life. And actually, the Jeep ride across our country, going through the cornfields of Kansas and all the rest, and the wheat fields of Alberta or whatever, Canada. Wow. Take me away. And I should add that Jeep topped out at 50 miles an hour, so we had lots of chance to get our eyes full of country I'd never seen as a child of the suburbs. So you you drop all the way up there at 50 miles an hour? You bet. From <laughs> Ohio. Ohio was the starting point. All right. That's, oh, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> hey, I'm not good looking. I'm not bright, but I'm persistent, you know, right. and that seems that it's a theme in life, too. Persistence wins the day. It does. But 72, I think we'd scaled our our goals back to where they were back in the frame and Mm -hmm. there was something that was doable Mm -hmm. and many of my east coast mentors i said hey i've climbed up in the gunks i've climbed at west virginia i've climbed the domes in north carolina i've climbed up in conway and all that where do i go next go west young man well looked at the maps that's kind of vague could you be a little more specific and too many people said if you go to devil's tower route finding's not going to be a problem for you you follow the same crack all the way up. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Now, my partner, John, he'd already dropped out of college. He had a job. He had money. Mm-hmm. So he took a plane to Rapid City. Well, of course, that was the year of the Rapid City flood. So I got here before John did. And I'm hitchhiking. I spent my first night in Wyoming, in Moorcroft, in the jail. But that's another story, and I don't do that anymore. (laughs) Next day, my buddy John showed up on a bus from Rapid City, and the local sheriff was just anxious to get both of these boys out of town. He flagged down one of the high school kids that was cruising up and down the main drag there and said, Why don't you straighten this car out and take these boys out to Devil's Tower? I'm sure they'll give you gas money. So in the dark, in the back seat of a convertible Chevelle, in a heat lightning storm was the first time I saw Devil's Tower. With each flash of lightning, the tower looked more and more like Dracula's castle. But the key was, show no fear. I know John was shaking in his boots just like I was, but you couldn't show it. So we found the campground camp, got up early, and found the top of the tower by the Durrance route the very next day. There weren't many climbers at that time. Very few. We had the tower to ourselves. As a matter of fact, it was not until my second trip out to the tower, just a few months later in September, where there my partner and I were the 999th and 1,000th individual ascents of the tower in tower history. So from 1937 to 1972, there'd only been a thousand ascents of the tower all those years. Now it's 1,500, 2,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So that we had the tower to ourselves was no surprise. 
and it was really a great joy. Did you know at the time, did they tell you it was the thousandth? thousandth? In September, they did, yeah, the Park Service, because there weren't many climbers. Right, right. The Park Service at that time just kept meticulous records. Mm -hmm. And I should add that Devil's Tower at that time, it was kind of like Fort Apache, man. It was the end of the frontier, and the tower didn't have many climbers, and generally it didn't have many visitors at all, to be honest with you. Nothing like what comes today. I don't think in the early 70s, America's, Americans had clued into the joy of national parks the way that we do now. Right. So not many people came, not at all. There was one hamburger stand outside the front gate, and there were more flies inside the hamburger stand than there were outside. <laughs> you know, and that was the big tourism dollar deal. Mm-hmm. That was what was here. Not much. Not much at all. So what did your climbing life become after college in terms of, uh, I know you ended up in Yosemite for some time and and I don't know where else, but I mean, we can obviously spend a lot of time, but so you you graduate college with some sort of degree, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got a a bachelor's and a master's in biology. Okay. I've got a master's in mushrooms. Let's just leave it at that. And in 76, I uh, actually told stories and uh, got employed by the Park Service here at the Tower as a seasonal ranger. Okay. And I guess that's really the summer that I learned how to climb. It really helped me put things together. One fellow, Dennis Horning, took me under his wing and lined out my game. Okay. And uh, my climbing went in that 100 days of that summer from hesitantly leading five sevens to having led every five nine on the tower and followed Dennis up all the tens that existed at that time. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Dennis Horning, for the rest of my life. And probably doing new routes, too, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Lots of new routes with Dennis. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And with those skills, I felt like the rest of the world was open and... Let's just say, Chris, it's been a really good life. I've climbed all over this country and Canada and Mexico. It's been really good. But what really consolidated all my thinking and my methodology as well as my techniques was that one summer with Dennis right here at the tower. I'm happy to tell people I've been up El Cap 21 times, and guess what? Everything I needed to learn to do that, I learned right here on Devil's Tower. Uh And you can, too. (laughs) So bring it on. Let's go learn how to speak the language of cracks. Mm -hmm. Because that's what's going on here at the Tower. Mm -hmm. Jamming on. It's fantastic. You have been here at the Lodge for how long? Uh, We just finished our 15th season. Okay, 15 years or 15 seasons here at at Devil's Tower Lodge. Running the bed and breakfast and running the guide service. Mm -hmm. Bought it in November of 99. Saw the passing of the millennium, of course, up on the tower. Right. (laughs) Where else would I be, man? Right. It was me and Mary. And let's just say we had a very special passing of the millennium celebration out there seeking to redefine the term stroke of midnight beautiful 
Um, so I'm going to like focus in on, on what was it? Is it 2007 or eight that you did the 365 fruits? It was one of those years. Yeah. And, um, at this point, you know, reading in, in the literature, and I know you still say this, um, including that year, maybe over 2000 ascents of the tower, but you, you were saying that like six or seven years ago so i mean we have to be in well into your 2000s i would guess i got my little binder book here okay. got the first one of these when i was in fourth grade english class you're compelled to buy a bound binder mm-hmm. and i write down all my climbs in here i don't count them every night before bed i don't know i summarized i ran this up mm-hmm. for this last season and I found out that from the second week in May to the end of September, I was up on the tower guiding or climbing five out of six days for those five months. And that's kind of a typical summer here right. for me. Right. And so the 365, well, it sounds crazy. I guess it is. But it's not that much a stretch. Sure. And well, look gonna, the other way. I'm going to disagree with you on a oh, couple man. points with that. No, no, no. All right, so when I called you, was it yesterday morning? Yeah, it was yesterday morning. I left a message because you were out. You know, I imagined all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I wonder if he's climbing the tower. And it's, I don't know, I was in South Dakota somewhere, and it's like seven degrees outside, and there's like gray and sort of occasional blowing snow. But still I had this, because I had read that, I was like, well, if this was 2008, guess what? It's December 26th, which means he would have to get up this morning and go climb the frickin' tower. So it wasn't like completely unreasonable to think that, oh, well, maybe he still does that on occasion. So so you decided to do this. What was the impetus for this idea of once a day for the entire year? I mean, keeping in mind that at least for the summer, you'd probably do that almost anyway. Yeah. But but that's what i'm talking about is there's still these january february (laughs) march november december months where it's not exactly uh inviting to get up and like if we were to go right now it's i don't know what do you think it's like 10 degrees outside i hope you brought all your clothes yeah oh is this part of the deal yeah all right (laughs) i don't get an interview unless i go climb the tower we can do that too So yeah, tell me about this project because I think it it sits in the kind of in the middle of where you are now with your time here at the at the Devil's Tower. So I mean, just time wise. Yeah, yeah, I really hadn't thought of it that way, Chris, and that's enlightening. To me, the the three sixty five was kind of recent to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the the whole and true story, as best as I can tell it, is quite simple. A few of us had just started. And we went through the, all the paperwork to set up a not-for-profit operation, a certified charity, a 501c3, so that we could work with folks that live on Pine Ridge Reservation and on Rosebud Reservation. Um, the statistics on people who live there is horrible. There's 30,000 people living on Pine Ridge Reservation. And today, 2014, life expectancy is deplorable for women it's 52 for men it's 48 Uh, there's five times the infant mortality rate than in the rest of the country diabetes is rampant suicides off the scale Um, 
it's a third world country it's horrible and we started this not-for-profit in part just so we could be there and find out what the heck's going on quite honestly and um, also there was you know the ongoing issue and it's still there some of the native leaders so they remain in the newspaper and in the news will periodically and unannounced show up here at the park and claim that the tower's theirs and it was stolen and all that so they're I wanted to find out what's going on here what what is what's the reservation store you with me and so we named our operation uh, Devil's Tower Sacred to Many People very cool and it's a whole story of setting up alliances and friends on both Pine Ridge and Rosebud and those friendships continue today it's really a wonderful thing to do and some really neat people out there but at that time we were just another small 501c3 with our hand out you know trying to write grants looking for donations and ready to take a case of ibuprofen if Walmart or Kmart offered it for free you know and we needed to kind of get in the news Hey! And I'd always wanted to do it anyway. Let's go see if we can climb, not 50 days or 70 days or 100 days or 200 days. I live right here. I can fall off my back porch and be at the base of the tower. Let's go see if I can climb on Devil's Tower every day for a year. Started it on the 4th of July. My mom had Alzheimer's. I probably will get it too, but I believe that even through the cloud of Alzheimer's, I will remember that year. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Some awesome times. Absolutely. Wouldn't swap it for the world. So I imagine that you, you like I said, it's pretty easy to get it done. You're working, you're guiding, you know, through the summer anyway. And uh, most, like you said, some days you're working five six even maybe seven days a week so you're, you're putting your time in but then it gets cold and it gets and you know who are did you have any sort of you know you, you were doing this for publicity for your for your uh nonprofit, but did you happen to come up with any sort of um of your own parameters for what the game was going to be in your own mind you know, we were talking earlier about about climbing on El Cap, and and I had, even within my own mind, had come up with these rules. You know, about what it meant to solo a route. And for me, I didn't let anyone carry my stuff off the top or up to the bottom. And you know, and then later on, I would, wasn't fixing ropes, and those were these personal rules. And I never felt like I was going to tell everybody else, like, oh, this is how you have to do it if you solo it or whatever. In fact, most people have no idea that I had those rules. You know, so you're doing this for a, a cause, but at the same time, as a climber, you have to, you know, there's this honor system. So what were your kind of, what were your parameters for what it meant to go climb on the tower? Did you have to do a full pitch? Did you, you know, could you solo things? Could you run up and slap it, tag it, you know, do a move and, and come down? Well, I didn't want to slap it and tag it and do a move and come down. That wasn't. No. (laughs) No. I will admit, I had some help. I really did. Well, of course. Uh, By that time, I had been guiding however many years and in newsletters to the 
the multitude, everybody knew what I was doing, and I certainly put out an invite, you know, come stay, <clears throat> I'll feed you, house you, and I need a partner. That'd be really helpful. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I had several people take up on that offer, and it was so supportive and so welcome. And um, even with Dave Hutchinson out of Montana, he came down. We put up two new routes in February. <laughs> I mean, they were nailers, but right. uh, conditions were severe, man. But we hung in there and did it. He came for three days, and we, we tacked in two new routes. It was really fun. And it was. Take all your clothes, and I got... I got hand warmers, not those chem packs. They look like Zippo lighters on steroids. Oh, sure. Yeah, your yeah. Ice, Minnesota, Wisconsin, yeah, those, ice fishermen, yeah, those hand warmers. Yeah, classic ones. Yeah, oh, yeah, the, man. I mean, they'll you're burn at, you as often as they'll freaking warm your hands if up. If you too. don't put them in the velvet pouch, they'll burn <laughs> yeah. your hands. So yeah. I got one in a pocket and one in a chalk bag. And yeah, it worked. It worked. Uh, I had no gauzy uh images of making it to the top every day that mm -hmm. was i guess if i had one rule it was be safe and make sure you can climb again tomorrow right and i'll be honest uh it was a hard winter with a lot of snow and there were <laughs> of lots of days man where even just making your way up the talus and across the west shoulder to the base of the durance route mm -hmm. and then rappelling down the the bowling alley i was pretty darn good day man <laughs> especially if you're out there solo and i mean right. come on there's just too many places you could skate and go right uh i found out that the east face routes were pretty friendly um el craco solar those were good ones for me to solo i'm pretty solid on that no mm -hmm. matter what the weather and they catch the early morning sun and the the cracks are clean and the only problem was with the snow at the bottom Mm -hmm. But once you got through that and up on the rock, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Getting over there was a the hard part, and don't tell the Park Service, but I might have fixed a rope, so I wouldn't yeah. slide off of that. But once up on the rock, it was, let's go. Uh -huh. yeah. No, it's a year I'll remember. All of it. It was just fantastic. Wouldn't swap it for, wouldn't swap it for much, I'll tell you. Did you? So, what was the result? I mean, were you uh, successful in your kind of bid to get the the organization off the ground? Yes, yes, that was very, very favorable. Um, you can look online, and uh, even got New York Times reporters out here mm -hmm. in the warmer months. Sure, uh, and uh, Denver Post, and uh, the climbing mags were kind. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, that really worked out. And as it turned out, uh, Walmart, yes. <laughs> Walmart was, was and continues to be very, very kind to us. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was profound difference. Mm -hmm. But it didn't affect what we were doing. We'd uh, come up with alliances on the reservation with a, a small independent clinic. We never gave and still don't give any money to anybody. It's all supplies, materials, goods, services. No money, no money, no money. But at the same token, when we do spend money, be it at Walmart or thrift stores or whatever, medical supplies, squeeze that nickel. Mm -hmm. 
and you know give them a shot hey look you want so much for this what if we pay half and you match and you give us a crate of rubbing alcohol or a case of band-aids or, right you know a carton of ibuprofen mm-hmm. and so forging those alliances and it's kind of like who can you trust mm-hmm. it's like traveling in a foreign country right it really is and once you figure out uh, the good guys and the bad guys and what the local uh what the local way of life is get along really well yeah then it's good do you ever do um any sort of climbing outreach in terms of youth or anything like that uh in terms of the reservations yes yes indeed and i have had um a good number of native americans uh come to go climb with me Uh some came with preparation and permission of their medicine man and all this great Others just, yeah, family trips out over here. Can I go climb with you today? Mm-hmm. Heck yeah, man. Let's go. You know? And it continues. Right. And right now, the largest part of what we're doing is through a Boys and Girls Club okay. out on Rosebud. And they've got a very young, eager, energetic, and creative staff. Mr. Glenn Marshall. Here's a shout out to Glenn Marshall and the Boys and Girls. Rosebud Boys and Girls Club. They're doing miracles out there. Yeah, absolutely. Keep everybody on track before school and after school Mm -hmm. with um, kids from, oh, elementary to high school. Right. Amazing what they're doing. Their budget, you give those kids two popsicle sticks and they got an afternoon activity for the the whole crowd. Right. One of the ones I still laugh about it, they had mummy day. How far is Egypt from Rosebud Reservation? It's not just time and space. Believe me, there's a lot of distance there. So they had Mummy Day. They handed out rolls of toilet paper, and the kids took turns wrapping each other up in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a high-budget activity, isn't right, it? Right, right. Yeah, oh, paper. so much special education dollars. These guys are fantastic in what they do. Right. And they also make sure that everybody has a nutritious snack, hot soup, good bread, fruit. Feel such a void there, and they are changing and redirecting lives for mm-hmm. the better. It's just amazing to watch. Yeah. So let's uh, let me ask you some questions about. We'll get a little bit bigger than just Devil's Tower and what you're doing here and and your connection to it. So you, I mean, you're in your 60s. You're about to you're about to roll one uh, another one by tomorrow. And you did this this 365 thing in your 50s, you know, so um, not necessarily, you know, what someone would consider like just their prime climbing moment. And yet you made it happen. And, you know, so you've lived this life of of climbing from from right out of high school all the way up to this point. Um, I know you've had your ups and downs. Um, How long have you been clean and sober? It'll be 16 years this June. Okay, 16 years, just and before you moved here then. Oh, yeah. Is when it began, so that's probably connected. And, you know, you've lived this life of climbing, and whenever I hear you speak, you talk about climbing in a way that I really love uh, because, you know, you're not, you don't have it nailed down, but you, you definitely are seeking and trying to understand, like, what its power is. And you also are a person that appears to me to believe in you know this 
power that it has that's that's uh, you know i tend to be somewhat elitist i'll admit it like i think it's like the greatest no, thing man. and climbers are the greatest people but but i you know i continue to believe that there's something transcendent about it and are you a guy that can put that into words or speak to that at all in terms of what you've seen in your own life and your own transformation and the people around you and and what it's done for you in terms of of growing and living and and arriving at this place in in such a good place well i still haven't figured out how i've arrived at this place chris every time i hand out a business card it's got a picture of the tower and i hand it out saying that's a shot off our back porch and without fail whoever i hand it to looks at it and says that's incredible and inevitably i respond with i've been there 15 years and i say that every morning while i'm sitting on the back porch with my cup of coffee and looking at that tower in my backyard it's still incredible i still start every morning that i'm here on the back porch with a cup of coffee looking at the tower and i really haven't gotten much closer to answering the question why me but i think like a lot of other things in life if we skip the why part and get on with the how mhm or what how am i going to deal with this and what am i going to do because it is i'm here right here and now and that tower's right there staring at me why let's skip that what and how am i going to do it today i got people coming i don't have people coming you know i got experienced climbers coming i've got people who've only seen it in books what am i going to do how am i going to achieve their goals mm-hmm. how am i going to help them to reach their own summit not necessarily the summit of the tower but how am i going to help them find what they came here looking for mm-hmm. cuz everybody whether they want to admit it or not it's kind of a pilgrimage coming here this is not across from uh, the mall of america sure okay we got 44 people in our zip code right out in the geographic center of nowhere here and people who do find the tower are either lost or looking and i've realized that even those people who think they're lost were actually looking and directed to come here yeah now yeah. real trip man i i have no explanation i just have gratitude mhm i do know by june of 99 i was on a rapid i was power augering it into the ground my addictions and my alcoholism was running me over the end was a 33 day drunk and i knew it wasn't ending and i drove myself into rehab for a month yeah that gives you a whole different way of looking at life i don't think anybody can go through rehab in the 12 steps and not come out at least a little bit buddhist <laughs> but you know we'll see how that plays out and 
at the end of that time, I was, I mean, through that time, I've been in negotiations for this house and this property. Okay. I didn't let that interrupt it. I couldn't see letting go. Right. No matter how drunk or whatever I was or how clean and sober I was, I wasn't going to let go of this. And so after getting out of rehab, um, was able to make the real estate deal work right there. Mm-hmm. And I had to reflect that you're right, it's not fair. Because some of those dear people that I went to rehab with, they went back to family and just screwed up situations that, oh, I, I couldn't have stayed sober through. No way. And what do I get? I get this place handed to me. Yeah, but but sure, it was. I mean, it wasn't handed to you. Like, well, you got to I mean, buy it. But how right, many people? You know, what are the chances? Sure, there's, there's sure. One place like this on the face of mm-hmm. this earth. Yeah, I had to buy it, and it cost a lot of money. And right. That was fine, but you can figure out. Yeah, but I mean, ways it, to lean and lever it, and all that. What you just Come said on. is is actually uh, what you said is is really important because you know I've known plenty of people with pro- with these problems with addiction. Um, we have a dear friend, Brandon, who, who connected me with you that talked about it on the show. And one thing I do see in that, and yes, you were lucky and you don't know why, but to get out of whatever program they're in or be going through a program, especially something where if you were, you know, it was a rehab program like 30 days where you were sequestered, but to emerge back into the same life that the person had before they went in is, I mean, that is a real crapshoot because all those things are still there. And so, you know, do you believe that the, that one of these, the big, maybe the big saving graces for you was the fact that you did move into this transition to this new way of life? Was that helpful or was it just a matter of luck that, that you stuck with it? Oh, I think being here was one of those things that was meant to be. Mm-hmm. But the the major point of going to rehab, that everybody that hasn't been there mostly overlooks is, unless somebody's done an intervention with you, if you get yourself to rehab, you're admitting that Frank can't keep Frank sober. Right. And Joe can't keep Joe sober. And right there, you're admitting that you need help. Mm -hmm. And you realize that there are some people who can guide you, but the help you need is from a different area. Right. It is divine. It is ubiquitous. It is, you give a a label and a name to it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, the higher power term is pretty good. Everybody gets to find their own. There is no one higher power, but you got to tap that source. Sure. And part of the at least physical embodiment of my higher power is that tower in my backyard. I got to tell right. you, Chris, it really is. It's an unending reminder that Frank can't keep Frank straight. But all I've got to do is open my eyes and look out, look up. There's plenty of power available that's sticking a hand out two hands out, arms, everything. All I have to do is ask. Get over my ego and say, man, I'm having a bad time and I can't handle it. I need some help. Mm -hmm. 
and anybody who takes themselves into rehab comes to that moment and that's really that's the biggest crux in life man sure I've taken 50 foot whippers off Hellcat, man. I've looked death in the eyeball. I've uh, been down to the last shiver in a snowstorm to where I didn't even shake anymore, and neither did my two partners. And Jimmy was hallucinating. Yeah, that was life changing. But going through rehab and admitting, I can't do this alone. Yeah. That redefines the genre mm-hmm. of life as I knew it. Were you living here already, or did you move? No, nope, I was living in California, okay, Northern California. California. Okay. Yep, yeah, not too far from the valley. And did you? I mean, are we looking at a pretty steady line of climbing, or were there periods in your life where it was something that you weren't interested in, or had moved away from, at all? Because I mean, I've talked to you uh, over the last couple of days about you know your time in Yosemite, and uh, and uh, and you know you're talking up through the '80s, and then now you're here. But was there ever a time where it wasn't a part of your life, or were you always using that or getting out there and, and, and you know, having that as, as something that you were interested in? Oh, no. There have been many other distractions. Music, mm-hmm. sea kayaking, all kinds of things. Right. But, no, climbing's always been. Yeah, climbing's always been there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, I've looked at a lot of other things in my life come and go. In addition to girlfriends, you know, but mm-hmm. other activities come and go, and they've come and gone. Right. But somehow climbing and music mm-hmm. are the two that have persisted. Right there along with breathing and beating. Yeah. <laughs> and probably all four of those will go away at the same time. All right. Yeah. <laughs> One of these days, I Within suppose. seconds of each other. I'm right, saying. right. So I guess the uh, the ultimate normal cast question: Why climb? Why climb? That's a fine question, Chris, and I hope you can uh, you'll be answering this in a minute. I don't know. There, I guess there's a lot of different things that go into it, but they come and go. And now, after climbing, gosh, it'll be 48 years, something like that. Two things have always stuck with me. Uh, the, the really addictive parts of climbing, the essence of it, to me, comes down first to focus. Focus. When my feet come off the ground and my hands engage the rock, you have a focus that I'm sure can be attained through other activities, but they're very rare. And certainly that focus comes to me immediately. Or damn well better <laughs> as soon as my feet get off the ground on this tower you could have columns falling off the tower on either side of you and I think you already know that wouldn't be a distraction as long as you had your eye on the next foothold or the next handhold or the next toe jam we could have a nuclear mushroom cloud rising over Hewlett <laughs> and it would be not not even affecting that focus, that amazing focus that we as climbers get when we engage this activity. That's the first thing. What about about 400 Harleys driving by? Uh, You can even dial them out, man. (laughs) I have done that consistently for, well, quite a few years now. Yeah, right. Yeah. 
The biggest distraction, of course, is screaming monkey in your brain, but then that's one-on-one there. That's a little harder. But, yeah, the focus. And the second thing is the heightening of the senses. Uh, I've spent many decades being a very conscientious or unconscientious drug abuser. I have never found a heightening of the senses as I get when I'm climbing. Some poor bastards who never climb never discover that you actually have ridges and grooves in your fingers. I defy anyone to climb more than three minutes and not discover the ridges and grooves in your fingers. Heightening of the senses. Yeah, that's an addict's joy. And I must admit, being addicted to rock climbing still could kill me, but that's an addiction I'm hugging with me. Now, Chris, what's kept you climbing? Oh, man. Fame? Yeah. Fortune? That's mostly Learn it. how to climb, get all the chicks? That's it's just mostly, like playing yep. in a rock and roll band? Yeah, that's what? pretty much it. Yep, just Checks maybe. come in the mail yep. all of a sudden? I got to get home and empty my mailbox. I'm sure they're... I'm sure it's bulging with checks right now, just pouring out of it. You know, it's 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 a question I guess I've answered in part throughout this entire project. But uh, you know, the thing you just mentioned, the focus thing, is undeniable. Um, but and 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 I'd I'd put that with the heightened sensory sensory idea. But there, I just love the feeling of power. Like it it sort of just, I mean making the move and and clinging on and holding on and and looking down and just feeling so this kind of master of this little moment in this terrain is just an incredibly powerful feeling i've i've thought about it over and over again and how it never leaves you you know you, you you go out there and you and you do this thing that even after i've done it thousands of times and covered thousands of feet there's there's these moments even just sport climbing or just climbing something easier or whatever where you just have this moment of like holy shit i am like just clinging to the side of this mountain or this rock and i don't know it's just i always just get this surge of power every single time that i do it and that in terms of affecting my life that surge of power stays with me and i can summon it in other parts of my life and you know I've dealt with the storms and I've dealt with the you know the shivering and I've so to be able to draw on that power in other places in my life is really awesome and I don't know what I would do without it you know and I don't know that whatever else I've achieved meagerly in the other parts of my life would I have done those things without being able to to look at this little place inside of me that I've already tested and pushed and one of the things is that with this project is that it's made me really realize it. And it's part of why I'm just like relentless about doing this thing is that this idea of the community within climbing yes. is it's such an, an important thing to me. And I also just feel like it's a grand community of people who in general want good for each other. It's just this feeling of camaraderie that I haven't felt other places, and I don't necessarily know that I've even heard it described that well in other places, where it's an ongoing, lasting thing that is, again, sort of built on this 
feeling we all share about trying hard and, and, and pushing ourselves in sort of this noble way that doesn't usually involve getting paid or any of those other things. And I really like that. I think there's a nobility in climbing and climbers have this nobility, you know, not a hundred percent, but it's a, it's an, my experience is that it's there with a lot of people. And I like that in a friend as well. You know, I like that, 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 uh, quality in, in people that I spend my time with and not that you have to climb to have that but Good I just like it seems like the the shakeout it happens quite often you know we talked about your friend Don Glantz who I interviewed a while ago yes. my friend as well as yes. someone who has that quality <sighs> so those sorts of people they're out there and climbing maybe they are everywhere but I just feel like it shakes out pretty pretty commonly in climbing so those are my kind of reasons I guess to not just do the physical activity, but to be involved in the, in, in the community and everything else. So, well, and you've created a community out of this place, you know, that you, we started with, with, you know, your Christmas cards and these things that people are sending to you. And you have this huge network now of people that look at this place and your, and the experience with you as something transcendent and you are a part of it. So it's like, those are kind words, Chris, but I really don't feel like I've created a community. I think the community's there, and mm-hmm. this is just another place where the river can flow now a little more freely. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm jumping in and splashing around. Come on, what's bad about that? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Golly, Ned. Well, you know, the one last thing I'd uh, just love you to do is... Uh, Tell everybody why they ought to come to Devil's Tower and check it out. Wow. I guess part of the question, or not really question, but the invite or whatever, is that question of the basis of the joy that you have in in introducing this tower to people um, is a little bit different in a way than, than I see with a lot of sort of older generation climbers. So, you know, I guess that's that's more what I'm getting at, like, why is it you think that this needs to be a part of everybody's climbing resume is to spend some time up here at the at the tower devil's tower wyoming is crack world okay cracks of every size and every route rating every difficulty it's just technically it's a wonderful place and you're going to be doing multi-pitch so you can get your act together no uh, 50 meter macrame projects okay but nobody knows what macrame is anymore anyway so that's that's why i encourage people to come here you can it taught me how to climb it got my act together for multi-pitch yeah it's very straightforward and it's very beautiful um most of the cracks here almost all the routes are really what i call fair they're well protected. There's no certain sequence of moves. Uh, one size fits all. That's cracks take you as you are. Doesn't matter if you got small hands or big hands. Okay. So that's, I guess, in a technical climbing level, that's why I say come here. But the tower is so much more than that. It's 600 feet. It's not the 3,000 feet of El Cap. Or the 2,300 feet of Hapdome. Or even the 2,000 feet of Sentinel. 
but there is something about the tower that is both undeniable and undefinable that is powerful and awe-inspiring even to the corn farmer out of Kansas who never even thought of climbing has no concern whatsoever what the Native American traditions or presence might have been here I've been running the bed and breakfast and the guide service for 15 years. Yeah, I've met a few people, but very few in that time that were not, I don't mean touched, I mean struck by whatever that undeniable, undefinable power is. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's all the more reason for you to come for a visit. Yeah. Get off that computer. Get out of that chair. Get in the van. Get in the car. Or, hey, stick your thumb out and hitchhike out here. I got a place for you to stay. Everybody camps in my side yard. Side yard, I got 21 acres. Lord, am I blessed. Yeah. So that's why I'd say come to Devil's Tower. Don't just look. Come taste, hear, smell, touch. And you tell me, what words do you use to describe that special power that's all over here? All right, well, Frank, thanks for sitting down. And uh, I can tell you that... Uh, it was a very warm welcome out of the cold last night and had a wonderful time staying at your place this evening. I mean, last evening, and uh, I really appreciate your hospitality. And, and I'll back that up to the invitation that he just made that uh, if you're coming to Devil's Tower, you got to at least come by and, and uh, have a word with the man who knows so much about the place and believes in its power. So thanks for sitting down. Thank you for coming here. Yeah, the tower at least has kept me clean and sober, and I can't ask for much more than that. Yeah. But we got a whole lot more than that last night, didn't we? Got to sit in the hot tub with snow yeah. coming down, man. You can't beat that. <laughs> it and was the tower cool. staring at us. Yeah, the tower was right Shoot. there in the mist. <laughs> it's a good life, ain't it? It is indeed. So let's get out there and get back to uh, living out our dreams. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed listening to Frank as much as I enjoyed talking to him. And for sure, if you head up to Devil's Tower, at least stop in and say hello. The guy will make your day better, for sure. If you follow the social media around the Enorma cast, Instagram, tweet to Facegram, all that stuff, you know that I actually went ice climbing a couple weeks ago at the Uray Ice Fest. Yes, it happened. 14 or 15, 16-year drought, something like that. Did a couple pitches, but the thing that really struck me, and this was during the festival, so it was absolute crazy town inside the park, is just how many sketchy people there are out there. Yes, we had occasion to uh, use some of our advice from episode 70 about uh, dealing with people around you that are doing sketchy stuff. And remember, the sketchy people don't think they're sketchy. So you, dear listener, might be one of those sketchy people. 
So make sure before you get out there, you really do know what you're doing. And at the very least, make sure to check your knot. Come far, pilgrim. Feels like far. Were it worth the trouble? Huh? What trouble?